So the Jewish community today is generally thought to be split between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Some people are a mix, one parent Ashkenazi, one parent Sephardi or grandparent. And uh, as we'll see, not everybody falls neatly into those two um, groups. Neither group themselves are monolithic either. Um, in other words, there are many, many different types of Sephardic Jews and many different types of Ashkenazic Jews. Uh, but still, most Jews today will still categorize themselves as either being Ashkenazic or Sephardic. And there's a number of differences between the groups in culture, in language, in pronunciation of Hebrew, in Jewish laws, in the prayer service, and um, even there's some slight genetic differences. Now, to be clear, while, the cultural, while culturally, um, such as in food and language, Ashkenazim and Sephardim are very different, when it comes to Torah and the mitzvot, the commandments, we are virtually the same. It's the same Torah, Ashkenazim and Sephardim have the exact same Torah, no difference between them. In the fulfillment of the commandments, it's the same 613 commandments. There are, as we will see, some very slight variations in halacha, in Jewish law. However, they're very slight and we're 99% the same. And we've always worked hand in hand together as a single people. And we've always shared the development of halacha. And as we'll see, there's been a lot of cross-pollination between the groups, Sephardic and Ashkenazi groups. So where did these groups come from? So we really need to go back to a little story of Jewish history. In the days of Moses, Jews were split among the 12 tribes, which were split by the 12 sons of Jacob. Each tribe later, when they enter the promised land, gets their own land, their own region, and um, has their own government, form of government, and also had their own Sanhedrin, their own Supreme Council. And they also, we know, developed slight variations in Jewish practice. Now, there was a unifying force. Um, at first, it was called the Shoftim, the judges, later a kingdom led by King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Um, there was also a Sanhedrin Hagadol, a um, great council that was in charge, that was the final arbitrator of all of Judaism. However, there were variations, we know, between the different tribes. Later, um, when Israel became a kingdom, after the death of King Solomon, Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And for some 200 years, those two kingdoms were split. Um, and so Israel was really split into two. However, the real variations between Jewish communities really began with the diaspora. Well, after the destruction of the temple, the exile of the Jews from our land, that's when variations really began to um, crop up among various Jewish communities. And now the story of the development of Jewish communities is really the story of our history. It's a story of, as we'll see, history and geography, how various Jewish communities developed, how they were destroyed, how communities intermingled to create new communities. And it's really an ongoing story of our Jewish history. So initially, Jews were exiled from Israel to Babylon, in what's called the Babylonian exile, which is modern day Iraq. From there, Jews spread out across the Babylonian and later Persian empires. Now the Babylonian empire was an empire that stretched from Greece to India and down to Egypt. So was the Persian Empire. It was more or less the same land area. Jews spread across that entire region from Greece to India and down to Egypt. Later, the second temple was built in Israel and many Jews returned to Israel. However, Jews remained in many, many different places, um, including in, in Egypt, there was a large community in Syria, in what today we would call Iran. However, the largest Jewish community throughout the second, second temple period remained in Babylon. It was the largest modern day Iraq. It was the largest and wealthiest Jewish community. Some time ago, we did a class about the history of the Jews of Iraq and Babylon. 
So while Israel during the Second Temple period and immediately post the Second Temple, Israel was the center of Jewish life, the center of scholarship. All the great yeshivas were in Israel. The Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism was in Israel. Uh, Babylon, Iraq, was the larger and wealthier community. For most of the Second Temple period, Babylon was under control of the Parthians, later the Persians. Israel was under Greek and later Roman rule. Now those empires, first the Greeks and Persians, later the Romans and Parthians, later Romans and Persians, were constantly at battle with each other. So essentially Israel and Babylon, which were the two largest Jewish communities in the world at the time, were split among two different empires where, that were always at war with each other, where travel back and forth was somewhat difficult since you'd have to travel to a um, enemy country, essentially. And so travel was somewhat difficult. There was constant communication between the two communities, but it was somewhat limited. And as a result, we know variations developed between Babylonian custom and Jewish custom and Israeli custom in Israel. After the destruction of the temple, and particularly with the rise of Christianity in the 200s in the third century, the Jewish community in Israel was greatly persecuted and it really dwindled. The center of Jewish scholarship moved from Israel in the 200s, moved from Israel back to Babylon. And so Babylon, which had great yeshivas, became the new center of Judaism Jewish scholarship. So what happened is over time, both during the Second Temple period, and then also post the Second Temple period, variations developed between Babylonian and Israeli custom and laws. With Persian lands, in other words, Jews living in what today we'd call Iran, um, or Afghanistan, or, um, or um, the Caucasus region, um, that's um, the region between Turkey and Russia, um, or um, the Bukharan region, um, which would be kind of around southern, uh, the, um, the former um, Islamic, Islamic republics that, that were once part of the Russia or the Soviet Union, um, were all under Persian rule. And so Jews in those lands would follow their center, the center of Judaism for them was Babylon. While Jews in Roman lands, living in Egypt or in um, Byzantine, Asia Minor, um, in Italy, in Greece, even as far away as Spain or North Africa, would, be under, would consider Israel as their center. In fact, we have a small booklet that lists the differences in custom and tradition between the land of Israel and, Jews, and Bab Babylonian Jewry. So there were already many differences in custom that go back to that period, to this period when Babylon was under Persian rule while Israel was under Roman rule and Jews in the Persian community, um, in the Persian empire had some slight variation in halach in Jewish law um, and in custom and in tradition from Jews in Roman communities. Now, interestingly, historians have pointed out that many variations today that can be found between Sephardic and Ashkenazic communities can actually be traced back to variations between what would have been the Jews of the Roman Empire and Jews of the Persian Empire, or Jews of Israel and Jews of Babylon. Now, in the seventh century, Arabs, the Arabs conquered the Persian Empire, including Babylon and really the entire Persian Empire. They also moved eastward. They captured Syria, Israel, Egypt, which had all been part of the Roman Empire or the remnants, the Byzantine Empire. And then they moved across North Africa, conquering all of North Africa, all the way as far as Spain. As the Arabs moved across to Syria, to Israel, to Egypt, Jews from Babylon and um, the former, what had previously been the Persian Empire, followed those Arab traders 
um, followed those Arab conquerors. Many Jews were merchants, uh, many of them were traders. And so they followed and they built communities really all across um, the Arab, what had been the Arab Caliphate or the Arab world um, in Syria, in Israel, which by the time of the, by the, time of the Arab invasion of Israel, um, the, there were no Jews left in Israel. Jew, um, Jews had been totally wiped out um, due to wars not long before that. And um, in Egypt where there already was a community but, more, but Jews from Babylon came in large numbers. And then across North Africa to modern day Tunisia, to Morocco, modern day Morocco, Algeria, and all the way down to Spain. Now, by the 11th century, the caliphate had somewhat fallen apart, the Arab caliphate. And as a result, the Jew community in Babylon itself came under a lot of persecution from local Arab leaders. Um, the community in Baghdad and in the Iraq region. And so the community that had once been for, by that point, close to a thousand years, the largest Jewish community in the world um, and the wealthiest Jewish community in the world really began to dwindle by the 10th, 11th centuries. And with many Jews moving across the Arab world to places that were more tolerant, um, particularly um, e Egypt, North Africa, and Spain. At the same time, also in the 10th and 11th centuries, Jews that had lived in the former Roman Empire, um, which would be Byzantine, which would be modern day Turkey and Greece, um, Jews in Italy, which was what was left of the um, collapsing Roman Empire, began to move northwest towards France and Germany, um, which had become much more civilized. Trading routes were being developed along the Rhine River and other major um, river arteries in Europe, um, cities were being built. And so many Jews moved into some of those cities, um, beginning to build big Jewish communities in France and Germany. So really at this period during the 11th century, um, the 10 hundreds, this is really where we begin to see the, the growth of Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewry. Any questions? Rabbi, I'm sorry, I didn't understand your last statement. What century was it where the differences really materialized? The 11th century, the 10 hundreds. Okay, thank you. That's really where the difference, it began already in the 10th century, but um, it really grew in the 11th century, um, mostly with the collapse. The 11th century was the, the 10th and 11th centuries were the times of the collapse of the communion Babylonia. When the communion Babylon collapsed, um, the other communities grew, presumably with Jews that were moving from Babylon in very large numbers. Can I ask you a question? Uh, I've, I've always thought that there were like two, two Torahs developed as a result of this, the Palestinian Torah and the Babylonian Torah. You're thinking of the Talmud. Is a Talmud, yeah, yeah, okay. Palestinian uh, Talmud, or what we call the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. So... There were communities in both simultaneously. There was scholarship in both. The Jerusalem Talmud was written earlier in, um, not in Jerusalem, actually in Tiberias, but in um, Israel, which at the time was called Palestine, um, which is probably why it's often referred to as Palestinian Talmud. Um, the Babylonian Talmud was written later. Um, however, um, Jews of the Roman Empire did not necessarily follow the Jerusalem Talmud. In other words, there was a lot of cross movement between in scholarship between the communities and the Babylonian Talmud was considered the most comprehensive work for all communities, including Jews in Israel and the Roman Empire. Well, because it lasted longer. I think it was around longer than Palestinian Talmud, was it not? It Did was. It? Uh, well, I would say it was compiled later and it's much more comprehensive. Um, yeah. And the Babylonian Talmud is the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud is more like an earlier version of Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is a final version of Talmud. So are most Ashkenazics and, and Sephardics closer to the Babylonian Talmud even today? Everybody, the Babylonian Talmud is universally accepted as the most authoritative work of Judaism. Okay, okay. So how did each of these communities develop? 
So the Sephardic community, the word Sephard is the um, old Hebrew word to, that was used to refer to the Iberian Peninsula, which is where modern day Spain and Portugal are found. Now Jews lived there already from Roman times. Um, there's been some evidence that Jews lived there already in the um, first or second centuries, lived in, on the Iberian Peninsula. However, the growth of the Jewish community really began um, in the 900s, in the 10th century. Um, that's when we really find a strong, vibrant Jewish community in Spain uh, with great Jewish leaders already. Um, and it was really by the 11th, by the 10th, by the 10th century that it really began, 11th century that it really began to grow in earnest. Um, alongside a North African Jewish community, both presumably growing quickly, um, they were um, they were among, it was in within the Arab world among the most developed and forward-thinking parts of the Arab world with big universities, a lot of trade, um, gigantic cities, and um, Jews from the east, mostly from Babylonia, but other parts of the east moved in very large numbers to these areas. Um, Yeshivas were built across Spain, particularly in Cordoba. Cordoba was at the time the largest city. It was probably the largest city in the world at the time. And um, so, and the, the Jewish community in Spain or Spain, Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula really grew at the time. At the time it was a number of different states um, and that kept changing, mostly Muslim at first, gradually becoming more Christian with the re re Reconquista. So now in the late 12th century, that's the late 1100s, North Africa and Southern Spain was overrun by a group called the Almohids. Now the Almohids were kind of what we would, what we would recognize today as ISIS. Um, it was one of the only such events within Muslim history um, of a group that, of a group of Muslims that conquered what was already Muslim lands but were very extreme and um, forced everybody to convert to Islam or face death. They're also extreme in many ways. And so they, the, the conquest of the Almohads decimated the Jewish community in North Africa and Southern Spain. And as a result, almost all Jews in North Africa and Southern Spain moved to Northern Spain, which at the time um, was, um, was Christian and uh, where there would be where Jews were more welcome. And over there, they built a massive Jewish community in Northern Spain with the Reconquista over the next 200 years or so, as um, gradually the Christians moved south and captured much of the Iberian Peninsula, Jews moved back throughout Spain and Portugal, building large Jewish communities across Christian Spain and Portugal. Now the Spanish Jewish community, the Spanish, it was, Spanish, Portuguese, there were a number of different countries there at the time. There was um, Aragon and, um, and Castile and a couple other small, um, small kingdoms uh, within the Iberian Peninsula. But Jews that lived in the Iberian Peninsula were very wealthy. They were highly cultured. They built big yeshivas, great Torah centers. They also excelled in sciences. Um, many, great, many Jews were great doctors. Um, many were great at, the fine, at finances, many um, were into astronomy, um, navigation, which was just beginning then, um, the navigation to discover new lands. And so the Jewish community really continued to grow um, within Christian Spain uh, for quite some time until 19, uh, 1391. In 1391, there had already been for some years, there had been some Anti growth of anti-Semitism in Spain and anti-Jewish decrees. But in 1931, there was a series of massacres of Jews across Spain and Portugal. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed. Many were forcibly converted to Christianity. And as a result of these pogroms, many, many Jews fled Spain. Some went back to North Africa, which had by now um, was Muslim, but tolerant of Jews. Um, and um, many, the persecution of Jews continued throughout the 1400s throughout Sp uh, in Spain and Portugal. There, were, there was continued persecution. There were many pogroms. 
And so as a result, many Sephardic Jews fled to North Africa, to Italy. And then um, in the middle of the 15th century, when the Ottoman Empire captured, when the Ottomans captured Constantinople and built the beginnings of the Ottoman Empire, many Spanish Jews began to move to the, to the newly, the quickly growing Ottoman Empire. In 1492, Jews were expelled from Spain. And then four years later, they were expelled from Portugal as well. And this brought an end to very abrupt end to Spanish Jewry. And so Spanish Jews quickly spread across much of the world. Many Spanish Jews moved to North Africa, particularly to Morocco, which was very close, to Algeria, what would later be Algeria, um, then was the Barbary Coast, um, Tunisia, and um, even Libya and Egypt. Many Jews moved to Italy, um, many uh, which welcomed Jews, which some Italian states welcomed Jews, and many Jews, many, many Sephardic Jews moved to the Ottoman Empire. And so over time, um, these Jews really changed the places that they came to. In North Africa, they mixed with the local Jews that had already been living there for the last couple hundred years um, that were somewhat similar to Spanish Jewry because they had originally come from Babylon along the same time as Spanish Jews. There was a lot of movement back and forth between Spain and North Africa. But the, while the Spanish Jews spoke Spanish or Ladino, the, the, the uh, Jews of North Africa spoke Arabic and they were called Mistarbim. They were Arabic Jews. And, but over, and over, there was already a large community there. And over time, at first, in North Af much of North Africa, in Morocco, in other um, major Jewish communities, there was essentially a split community, a Spanish community, Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews, and um, a Arabic-speaking Mist um, Arbim Jews, um, two different communities. But over time, over the next 200 years or so, uh, the Jewish communities eventually merged with each other and assimilated, creating somewhat of a mix between the original Arabic Jews that had lived in North Africa for centuries before and the Spanish who arrived. The, for the Jews who settled in the Ottoman Empire, um, and that includes Jews settled in Greece, in Turkey, in the Balkans, which was mostly the former Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, um, in what today we'd call Syria, Iraq, Israel, Egypt, these were all part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, when they got there, there were already small Jewish communities that had been there from Roman times in all of these places. Those Jews were usually referred to as Romanite Jews. And those Jews were really close and somewhat similar to, they weren't Ashkenazic Jews, they were somewhat similar to Ashkenazic Jews in custom. However, the Sephardic Jews, they, were, they had dwindled over the years due to persecution. And the Sephardic Jews in all these places really quickly outnumbered the local Romanite Jews to the point that within a few decades, um, the Romanite Jews had just about disappeared in most of these places and were supplanted by these large Sephardic Jewish communities, Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jewish communities that really spread everywhere in the Ottoman Empire, again, in the Balkans, in Turkey, in Greece, um, in Syria, in Iraq, in Israel, in Egypt, all these places became, Egypt had at the time an old Jewish community, but um, became dominated by Sephardic Jews, Jews that had moved from Spain. A small number of Sephardic Jews settled in various states in Italy. Italy was many small states at the time where um, in many of the places they retained separate Jewish communities from the local Italian Jews. Um, and there were separate Italian communities and Sephardic communities. And that separation really continued uh, for hundreds of years where there were these two communities, Italian communities and Sephardic communities within Italy. When the Dutch Republic was created in the late 1500s, many Sephardic Jews particularly there were cryptic Jews. In other words, Jews that had converted to Christianity outwardly in Spain 
um, and were practicing Christianity outwardly, but were secretly still practicing Judaism. So many cryptic Jews moved to the Netherlands, which was, had been a Spanish state. And in fact, cryptic Jews had moved there earlier on, while it was under Spanish rule because the Inquisition was less powerful there. And um, once the Dutch Republic was proclaimed and the Netherlands became independent, is in the late 1500s, um, they came out publicly as Jews. They were allowed to do so. Many other cryptic Jews moved to, to Holland, building a very large Sephardic community um, in the Netherlands, in Holland, um, alongside what had always been an Ashkenazic community that was there as well, um, or a German community um, in Holland. So they also had two communities for a very long time, side by side. So prior to World War I, the Sephardic community was spread across the Ottoman Empire, North Africa, with pockets in Italy, the Netherlands, and elsewhere. Now, where did the Ashkenazic community come from? How did they develop? So Ashkenaz is the old Hebrew word for Germany. Ashkenazim really began also around the 10th, 11th centuries. Um, it really began in France and Germany. The German Jewish community, French German Jewish community was made up really of Jews that moved from Italy, from Byzantine, which was what today would call Turkey and Greece, and um, other parts of um, the former Roman Empire. Uh, it was almost certainly, uh, numbers were increased by Jews moving from Babylon as well, uh, but it remained, the traditions remained um, following the majority appears to have always come from the Roman Empire. The Jewish traders began, the Jews began as traders Firstly, in the Rhine Valley, which is kind of between Germany, uh, it's Western Germany, um, between uh, near France, but it quickly spread across much of Western and Central Europe, building very large Jewish communities um, in cities across Germany, France, even England, um, what would later be Austria, Hungary. Later, Jews were expelled from England in the late 1200s. In the 1300s, they were expelled twice. First, they were expelled once from France, let back in. Then they were, late 1300s, they were expelled the second time. So after the expulsion of Jews from England and France, Jews really were living just in Germany, on German lands. By the fifth, however, even in Germany, Jews faced a lot of persecution. There were many pogroms. Um, there were many anti-Jewish laws and rules for Jews in Germany. And so by the 15th century, by the 1400s, Ashkenazic Jews, which were G German Jews, began moving eastward to escape persecution, mostly settling in the Kingdom of Poland. Now, the Kingdom of Poland or Poland and Lithuania was a kingdom that covered at the time most of Eastern Europe today. It, it covered what, um, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, um, parts of Hungary, Czechoslovakia, uh, Czechoslovakia, Ukraine. And so Jews moved to these regions um, in very, very large numbers to the point that by the 1500s, there were more Jews in the kingdom of Poland than there were, in, than there were left in Germany. Later in the 1700s, the kingdom of Poland fell apart. It was split, parts of it went back to Prussia, which was a German state, some of it to Austria, the, uh, the Habsburgs, um, which was an Austrian-Hungarian state, and some, uh, but most of it went to the Russian Empire, leaving the largest Jewish community in the world in the Russian Empire. Now, the Russians were very anti-Semitic and made a lot of anti-Jewish laws, and yet the largest Jewish community in the world was there in Russia. Now, Pogroms in the 17th century, in the 1600s, sent a lot of Jews back westward out of Poland to Germany and Holland, as well as many Jews moved southward out of Poland to what today is Hungary and Romania, building essentially a very large Jewish community spread out 
Ashkenazic Jewish community spread out all across Europe from Russia and Ukraine, all the way through Hungary, Romania, um, Germany, Austria, and um, later even France and, um, and Holland. <coughs> so by the end of the 19th century, by the late 1800s, Jews, Ashkenazic Jews, really lived all across Europe, throughout all of Europe, and um, really with the largest Jewish community being in the Russian Empire, a couple million Jews living over there. So that's the short history of the Ashkenazic and Sephardic communities. Now, not all Jewish communities fit neatly into the Sephardic and Ashkenazic divide. Firstly, the North Afri African Jewish community, usually referred to as Maghrabi Jews, Maghrabi is the Arab word for North Africa, um, is really a mix between the Mistarbim, the original Arabic Jews that lived um, that lived in North Africa and the Sephardic Jews who came later. And as a result, the, the language became Arabic. In other words, they all spoke Arabic as their main language, not Ladino. And um, they, the customs were somewhat of a mix between North African Jewish custom and Sephardic Jewish custom. There were also a lot of large Jewish communities to the east that never had Sephardic Jews settle there in large numbers. Iranian Jews, Jews lived in Iran, in Persia, um, since the destruction of the first temple. And they've lived there continuously in large numbers. And they never had large, they never had an influx of Sephardic Jews living there. And the same were for Jews of Afghanistan, for Jews of Georgia, for Jews of, of Uzbekistan, called Bukhari Jews, none of them were ever Sephardic. They never had large numbers of Jews from Spain uh, moving there. However, after the Sephardic community became the dominant community in the, in the Ottoman Empire, and the Jewish community throughout the Ottoman Empire essentially became Sephardic, um, and the Ottoman, this Jewish community in the Ottoman Empire uh, was particularly in Turkey, Greece, was the, one of the largest Jewish communities in the world. Those, and, and the same as the community in Iraq, grew to very large numbers. The other communities essentially fell under the influence of Sephardic communities. So um, Azeri Jews, as they were called mountain Jews, and Georgian Jews fell under the influence of Jews in Istanbul of the Jewish community in Istanbul. In other words, their students, their promising students would be sent to yeshivas in Turkey to study. They would hire rabbis from Turkey to lead them. So as a result, they, there was a lot of Sephardic influence within those communities. And the same was true for the Iranian, Afghani, and Bukhari Jewish communities. Um, they, um, th because there was a large, the large Jewish community in Baghdad, influence those communities with most of their rabbis even either being hired from Baghdad, being brought from Baghdad, or their own young promising students being sent to Baghdad to the yeshivas to study. And as a result, the Sephardic community in Baghdad, which was mostly from Spanish exiles, um, had great influence over the Iranian, Bukhari, and Af Afghani Jewish communities. And so though their customs are somewhat different than Sephardic um, and their traditions are somewhat different, at least when it came to halacha, to Jewish law, and even with a lot of the customs, they adapted Sephardic custom um, due to influence from um, Iraqi Jews. Now, perhaps the most notable, the one Jewish community that was not influenced, that remained independent and was not influenced by Ashkenazic or Sephardic Jews would be the Yemeni Jewish community. The Jews lived in Yemen since the days of the destruction of the first temple and lived in Yemen continuously. Now they were somewhat isolated in Yemen um, from Jews in, at first in Babylon, when, when there was a large Jewish community in Babylon, they were somewhat distant um, and they were not under the Persian empire. And then even um, then later, um, 
under the Ottoman Empire, they were somewhat isolated from Sephardic Jews. Now it's important to remember when we say isolated, it doesn't mean there was no communication. There definitely was communication. Jews moved back and forth between Yemen and other Jewish communities all the time. In Yemen, you would be able to buy a set of Talmud um, in Sa'ana, which was the capital of Yemen and the largest Jewish community, you'd be able to buy a set of Talmud that had been printed in Vilna without a problem. And every other Jewish book was available for sale. Um, they had the works of various Jewish scholars from around the world. So it wasn't that the community was unaware of what was going on in other communities. However, they remained somewhat independent in that People didn't generally move back and forth between Yemen and other Jewish communities, though there was trade, but they weren't moving in large numbers. Um, yet the Yemeni Jewish community had their own yeshivas, their own schools, where they educated their own rabbis, so their rabbis were all trained locally. Um, and so they remained somewhat distinct, really, until the entire Jewish community of Yemen was transported to it, or almost the entire Jewish community was transported to Israel in 1948, 1949, um, when they first um, merged with other or mixed with other communities in Israel. However, they remain unique. Um, and till today, the Yemeni Jewish community really remains unique in, and separate from both Sephardic and Ashkenazi communities. Any questions? Can I ask a question? Uh Sure, that was an excellent, I want to say it was an excellent lecture. That's well, all I want yeah, to say, but I want to know, what, questions. What, what, what are your sources? Where do you get all this, uh, where did you learn all this history about it? Because uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not easy to find these, these, this, this information from anywhere. Uh, I don't have a single source. I didn't base this on a single source, I'll be honest. Well, I mean, you have several sources then. Uh, um, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, I, I could give you a list later of various places. Uh, okay. Any other, Lewis? Um, if you didn't see it, uh, there was a nice story in the Jerusalem Post about the name Menasha. 250 people got on a plane to go to Israel. Uh, these are the people living in Northeast India, about 10,000 Jewish people who had been there for many centuries. And... Uh, for a while, they were moving to Israel. It stopped for a few years, but now it seems that Israel is starting the movement again, resuming it. So India had an old Jewish community in a number of different places in India. Um, there were a handful of various old Jewish communities um, that became somewhat isolated over time. There was some debate over there, over the years, over there, you know, how Jewish, whether they were really um, an authentic Jewish community or not. Um, in the 18th century, large numbers of Jews from Baghdad moved to India, um, building a large Sephardic community there. So there was a strong Sephardic community. Um, eventually the other earlier Indian Jews merged with those Jews, um, became a single community. Um, most of them have now moved, are now in Israel or in other places. Um, now there are various tribes or groups around the world in India in other places um, that have claimed Jewish descent or Jewish connection. Um, there's been some political debate in Israel as to whether to recognize that or not um, and bring them to Israel. There's also been some debate in halacha in Jewish law among Jewish scholars and historians of whether those claims are accurate or not. Um, it's really a subject of its own um, to discuss those communities. Are they authentic Jewish communities with a old Jewish communities that essentially lost part of their Jewish history or lost touch with other communities? Um, are, they, um, are they just communities that more recently decided to become Jewish? Um, so there's some debate about each one of those various communities, a number of them. Um, and really, it's really a topic for a different discussion, uh, topic for another time for a different discussion. Um, Rabbi, what about right. the falashas? falashas. That, goes, that goes into the same... Um, that goes same category of what I was just um, uh, saying in response to Lewis. Are, are uh, there again, these are, there's many, there's a number of Jewish communities um, around the world or communities that lost their Jewish traditions, lost contact with the general Jewish community, um, claimed to be descendants of Jews many years ago, 
and um, how strong their claims are, um, are, again, it's been debated politically, it's been debated halachically, and it's been debated historically. I mean, that's really the question. Is there um, any genetic uh, um, um, signatures in their uh, blood or anything? Class, we did a class about a year ago talking about whether you can use genetic markings to prove someone's Jewishness or not. That, that's really its own. Well, I'm not talking about whether they're Jewish, but is it a culturally, you know, is, are they, are these falashas, for example, do they know, have? But it, it's really a topic for another time. It, it's really beyond oh, okay. this topic. Lewis? Did you, oh, you sorry, I just answered. I'm sorry. Um, Bart? Yeah, I just was wondering about uh, how Chabad, is Chabad mostly Ashkenazi then? And is there- That's an excellent question. So the, the Chabad Jewish community, um, the Chabad Jewish community, um, the co sorry, the Chabad community began in Russia, so it would be Ashkenazic. Um, its leaders were Ashkenazic. Um, however, as we'll soon see, um, there were some communities that are often referred to as Sephardic, but not really, that came under Ashkenazic influence and particularly Chabad influence, um, partic particularly those that were within the Russian Empire. Um, and then Chabad reached out to other or helped other communities that were struggling, particularly the Moroccan and North African Jewish communities um, in the mid 20th century. And so um, as a result, Chabad, there are people are Chabad who are Sephardic, Ashkenazic, um, really everything. So it's not mm -hmm. unique to one or the other. Rabbi? Yeah. Um, you know, in Israel, there's a lot of prejudice um, against the Sephardim there in Israel. And I would they say there was a lot of prejudice against the Sephardim by um, the early Zionists and founders of Israel. I don't know how strong it still is today. Um, it may be. Um, there's definitely some difference in success rates between Ashkenazic Jews and Sephardic yeah. Jews. Uh, yeah. Yes, but that's definitely a discussion of its own. Thank you for mentioning it. I just want to mention. Let me keep going. So it's important to note that while the two communities have differences, the Torah remains the same. And almost all the laws of the communities are identical. Because the two communities were always in close contact. We always studied works of each other's scholars. People were always traveling back and forth. Students and scholars moved back and forth. In other words, students from one community would often study in yeshivas and schools in the other community. There was a lot of movement back and forth. There was trade, of course. We Jews were excellent with trade. We traded with all Jews. And so Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jews always traded with each other. There are, however, a number of differences. One key difference between Ashkenazic Jews and Sephardic Jews, um, and this is included also Mizrahi, Eastern Jews, which would be Iranian, Afghani, Bukhari Jews, <laughs> Um, Sephardic pronounce is in their pronunciation of Hebrew. So Sephardic pronounce a light tav, which is a tav without a dot, as a T sound, while the Sephardic, while the Ashkenazim pronounce it as an S sound. Also, Sephardim pronounce the Kamatz vowel as an A, while the Ashkenazim pronounce it as an O. Sephardim pronounce the Tzere as an S sound, while Ashkenazim pronounce it as an A sound. And there's some other slight variations, um, even within Sephardic and Ashkenazic communities themselves, there's slight variations in vowel pronunciation. But that results in Ashkenazim saying Shabbos and Sephardim saying Shabbat. And so it, it, it creates this slight variation in pronunciation of Hebrew. Um, today in Israel, the Hebrew pronunciation is somewhat of a mix between Sephardic and Ashkenazic though it's closer to the Sephardic form of pronunciation. Some time ago, we did a class, and it's on the podcast, about the variations in the Sephardic in pronunciation of Hebrew and which way is right. And there's also, of course, very differences in food, um, some very big differences in food that we eat. Um, Ashkenazim have gefilte fish, chalant, kishka. Sephardim have chreim, dafina. So there's some quite a difference in food, the foods that we eat are mostly um, connected with the places that we were. In other words, we were influenced by our surroundings. And so, um, so we, we eat different foods. Ashkenazim, um, at least while we still lived in Europe, spoke Yiddish. Yiddish was the universal language of all Ashkenazic Jews. And until the mid 20th century, all Ashkenazic Jews spoke fluent Yiddish. While Sephardim, 
um, at least those that were in the former Ottoman Empire, spoke Ladino. Uh, that was their main language. Um, they spoke Ladino. Um, Sephardim in North Africa and even in Egypt spoke Arabic. Um, the same was also in Syria, Lebanon, Baghdad, uh, Iraq. They also, over time, began to speak Arabic. Um, and those in other countries spoke other languages as well. Um, there's some variances in the synagogue. Ashkenazim have velvet covers on the Torah scroll, lay them flat on the bima. Sephardim have hard cylinders that they put the Torah scroll in and the Torah stands upright within the cylinder as they read it. Um, Ashkenazim have a slanted bima. Sephardic have a stand, straight, flat bima. Um, Ashkenazic actually put our mezuzahs slanted as well and the Sephardic have their mezuzahs straight. Um, there's also some variances in the wording of the prayers um, between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Sephardim have a custom to recite Selichot um, for 40 days before Yom Kippur. They get up early and recite Selichot, while Ashkenazim only do it for two or three weeks. Um, Sephardic synagogues are built where everybody faces the center of the synagogue, while Ashkenazic synagogues are built with everyone facing the front. So those are just some variances, slight variances between the two groups. Um, mostly in tradition, custom, culture. There are some differences in halacha, in Jewish law. They may not be as visible, but in a sense, because Judaism is defined by Torah and by Jewish law, they're the most important. Um, now, there was a prohibition uh, that Ashkenazic leaders made in the early days of Ashkenaz, a thousand years ago, led by Rabbeinu Gershon, Meir Hagola, one of the first Ashkenazic religious leaders um, against polygamy. Polygamy had originally been legal in Judaism. Sephardim never had that prohibition and practiced polygamy for quite some time. Today though, no Jewish community practices polygamy anymore. Another rule that Ashkenazim made in the early days of Ashkenazic Jewry was the prohibition of eating kidneyot, which are vegetables or grains that look like chametz, but are not chametz. Um, most Sephardic Jews with some exceptions don't keep those rules. Um, some keep some of the rules, not all of them, um, but Ashkenazic Jews don't eat things like rice um, or corn or other things that are not chametz, but we don't eat them on Passover. Another notable difference, um, perhaps one of the most important, is with regards to um, shechita, or ritual slaughter. Sephardic Jews do not eat an animal that has a lesion on the lung that can be peeled off. Generally, if an animal after sl being slaughtered has a lesion on the lung, the animal is considered non-kosher. If, however, that lesion can be peeled off, can be smoothed out or peeled off, um, Ashkenazim Jews will eat it, while Sephardic will not. Another important difference in kosher food is Sephardic Jews do not eat any food cooked by a non-Jew. While Ashkenazic Jews will eat Jews will eat food cooked by a non-Jew as long as a Jew has lit the fire. So uh, many restaurants that have non-Jews cooking there, Sephardic Jews won't eat there. Um, and there, those are just some examples. There are many halachas where Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews are different. They're, of course, for most of Jewish law, we're the same for 99%. But for there is for a small percent, there is some variation there is between, between the two communities. Now, the reason for those differences is that each community had their own scholars who differed in view on halachic questions. And each community's scholars reached different consensuses over the years. Now, in, amongst Sephardim, their early halachic authorities in the early days of the Sephardic of the Spanish Jewish community were Rabbi Yitzchak Alfasi, who was actually from Fez in Morocco, but he's considered one of the fathers of Sephardic community. Um, back when there was a lot of cross between North Africa and Spain. Um, he's known as the Rif. Maimonides, the Rambam, who actually lived in Egypt, but was originally from Spain. He was a Spanish Jew. Um, another great scholar was Rav Shlomo ben Aderet, the Rashba, as he's known. Um, and um, those were, and there were many other great Sephardic scholars. For the early Ashkenazic halachic authorities were Rashi, Rabbeinu Shlomo Yitzchaki, Rabbeinu Yaakov Tam, who was actually a grandson of Rashi, Rav Yaakov Molin, who was known as Maharil. They were among the great 
Ashkenazic scholars. Now, in the 16th century, there was a Sephardic rabbi called Rav Yosef Karo, who had originally been from Spain, but had fled after the expulsion of Jews from Spain, had fled to the Ottoman Empire and settled in Safad in northern Israel. Rav Yosef Karo was considered the greatest Jewish scholar of his day. And he wrote a number of books. Most important work that he wrote was the Shulchan Aruch, the, which is literally means the set table, but it, was, it became the code of Jewish law. It was the most important code of Jewish law ever written and still considered till, till today the most authoritative work of Jewish law, of halacha, of Jewish law. Now, Rav Yosef Karo himself was Sephardic. So when there was a difference in view in halacha between Sephardic scholars and Ashkenazic scholars, Rav Yosef Karo generally took the view of the Sephardic scholars. So the Shulchan Aruch generally follows halacha, Jewish law, following Sephardic scholars. A contemporary of Rav, Yo of Rav Yosef Karo was Rav Moshe Israel. Rav Moshe Israel lived in Krakow at the same time, the 1500s. And he was considered the greatest rabbi of Poland of his day. When the Shulchan Aruch was printed and came to Poland, Rav Moshe Israel saw that it was a great book, but it followed, the halacha followed, the Sephardic traditions, the Sephardic rulings. And so he wrote a glosses on the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch means a set table. So he called his glosses the mapa, the tablecloth. And in his glosses, in his notes, he wrote all of the places where Ashkenazic scholars differed with, with Sephardic scholars and where Ashkenazic Jews should do, follow halacha slightly differently from the way Sephardic Jews do. And so ever since then, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, has always been printed, the set table, has always been printed with the mapa, with the tablecloth, with the glosses of Rav Moshe Israelin that offer the Sephardic ruling from Rav Yosef Karo alongside the Ashkenazic ruling from Rav Moshe Israelin from the Rambam. And so as a result, we have within Shulchan Aruch, the two together usually referred to as Shulchan Aruch, and within Shulchan Aruch, within the Code of Jewish Law, we have both the Ashkenazic and Sephardic um, ver uh, rulings in Halacha when they differ. So now Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewry, while they were somewhat split, with somewhat some difference, as we mentioned earlier, they always worked together. They were always in contact with each other. And there was a lot of cross-pollination between the two. And this goes back to the very beginning of Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewry. In the early days of Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewry, there were many Jews and many scholars that traveled between the two countries, between Germany, France, and the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, Portugal. But there was actually a very large Jewish community in a country called Provence. Provence was a country in the 11th, 12th centuries in southern France, or what today we, is called the French Riviera in Nice and, um, uh, in, in, uh, and the areas around southern France. And they were geographically situated between Spain and France, Germany. And so the, and Provence had a very large Jewish community. They had their own yeshivas, great scholars that lived there. Um, the rival of Abraham ben David was a famous scholar from there, um, Rav Menachem Meiri. And so they were really somewhat of a mix between Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewry. They were in between. And they really took from both Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewry and really influenced both of them. Later, Jews, Provence became part of France. Jews were expelled from France. But in the, in the 1300s, the 14th century, the greatest rabbi in Germany at the time was Rabbeinu Asher, known by the acronym The Roche. Rabbeinu Asher was expelled from Germany and forbidden from living in Germany. So where do you go? He moved to Spain. He came to Barcelona which at the time Jews had fled southern Spain at the time, were living in mostly in northern Spain. And so Barcelona was the largest Jewish community at the time. 
And Rabbeinu Asher, the greatest rabbi from Germany, the greatest Jewish scholar of his day, moved to Barcelona. He was immediately appointed as the chief rabbi of Barcelona, and he built a great yeshiva. But he was an Ashkenazic scholar. So he taught Ashkenazic scholarship teachings from Ashkenazic yeshivas in his yeshiva. And over a generation or two, all Sephardic rabbis were all students or student students of Rabbeinu Asher of the Rosh. In fact, Rabbeinu Asher's own son, Rabbeinu Yaakov, wrote a book, Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Asher, he's called, wrote a book called Arba'at Turim, which literally means the four pillars. It was a code of Jewish law. Now, Rabbeinu Yaakov was an Ashkenazic Jew, his father was Ashkenazic, living in Spain and a rabbi in Spain in Barcelona. And he wrote a book, that be, uh, a code of Jewish law that became the most popular code of Jewish law in Spain. He was an Ashkenazic Jew, and he wrote a lot of things following Ashkenazic ruling. So this led to a lot of cross-pollination in scholarship, in custom, between Ashkenazic Jewry, between Spartan Jewry. Later, when Jews were expelled from Spain, um, Jews, not in such large numbers, but many Jews actually did move. Spanish Jews moved to Germany and to Poland. They weren't large enough numbers to create a Sephardic community. They all assimilated into the Ashkenazic community. But as a result, many Ashkenazic Jews have Sephardic sounding names, Sephardic sounding family names um, from families that had moved from, from uh, that had moved to Poland. In fact, in many cities in Poland within the Jewish quarters or in Germany in the Jewish quarters, there would be streets called Portuguese street or Spanish street because that's where the Spanish Jews had first moved when they came there. So there was a lot of cross-pollination between these communities. Now, in the 19th century, Jews fled persecution in very large numbers from the Russian Empire, from Europe. They moved all over the world. But among places that they moved was to the Ottoman Empire. A large Ashkenazic community was built in the late 19th century in Istanbul. And of course, in Israel, in Jerusalem, um, in Sfad, in Hebron, and other cities in Israel, in Alexandria, in Egypt. And so many Sephardic places that had, had strong Sephardic communities saw Ashkenazic communities growing up as well. There were places, as we mentioned, such as Holland, um, that ha had always had Sephardic and Ashkenazic communities side by side. Um, the one city in Germany that always had a Sephardic community, Jews had moved there after the expulsion in Spain in large numbers, was Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany, always had a large Sephardic community alongside its Ashkenazic community. Now, the community, there were communities that weren't technically Sephardic, but had fallen under the influence of Sephardic Jews. And those are the Jewish communities in Georgia, or Gruzia, as they were called, and, um, and um, Azerbaijan, um, or mountain Jews, as well as the Jewish community in Uzbekistan, which were called Bukharan Jews. Now those Jews, the, Uzbek, the um, Georgian Jews um, had originally been um, kind of their own Jewish community. When large numbers of Jews moved to the Ottoman Empire, they ended up influencing Georgian Jews because their Georgian Jews brought rabbis from the Ottoman Empire and sent their students to Istanbul and to other cities in the Ottoman Empire to study. So they were greatly influenced by the Ottoman Empire. The same was with Bukhari Jews, were influenced by Jews in, in Baghdad. They sent their students to Baghdad to study. They brought rabbis from Baghdad. They were greatly influenced by Sephardic Jewry. However, in the late 1700s, both of those communities, or all those communities, fell and uh, were conquered by the Russian Empire. Now they were conquered by the Russian Empire, they started hiring rabbis, not from Sephardic communities within the Ottoman Empire. They, they started hiring rabbis from Russia because they were in the same country. So Bukhari Jews started hiring rabbis from Russia. Georgian Jews started hiring Russian rabbis. They sent their students, their promising young men, they sent to study in yeshivas in Russia, in the Russian Empire. And so as a result, Bukhari Jews and Georgian Jews fell under strong influence of Ashkenazic Jewry. Um, earlier, um, Bart had asked about Chabad. Um, many Bukhari Jews and Georgian Jews 
ended up studying in Chabad Yeshivas, um, the rabbi in, of Bukhara of Samarkand, which was the largest Jewish community in Bukhara at the beginning of the 20th, cent uh, at, at the beginning of the 20th century, was Rabbi Elozarov, who was a Chabad rabbi, an Ashkenazic Jew. Um, and so as a result, many of the, so most of the Bukharan rabbis studied and still do study today in Chabad yeshivas um, and are affiliated with Chabad. And the same is true for most Georgian Jews because of their influence. So there was a lot of this cross-pollination between the various Jewish communities. Now, most notable was the great Kabbalist, the Arizal, who lived in the mid-1500s in Safad in northern Israel. Now, the Arizal was a crossbreed. His father was Ashkenazic. His mother was Sephardic. The Arizal himself was the, a great Kabbalist, believed that certain Ashkenazic traditions have more, are more powerful from a Kabbalistic perspective, more meaningful, and certain Sephardic traditions are more meaningful from a Kabbalistic perspective. And so he took a little bit of both and essentially merged the two. And his students followed his, who were both Sephardic and Ashkenazic, followed his teachings and also did a little bit of both. In fact, the Arizal himself prayed in two synagogues. He prayed in an Ashkenazic synagogue and he prayed in a Sephardic synagogue. And there's two synagogues in Tzfat today that an Ashkenazic one where the Arizal prayed and a Sephardic one where the Arizal prayed. In fact, he created his own version of prayers that was a mix between Ashkenazic and Sephardic community. And many of the Arizal students and many Jews both in Sephardic and Ashkenazic communities began to pray according to the Arizal's version of prayer. In fact, in Ashkenazi communities, the Arizal's version of prayer became known as Nusach Sfard, the Svard version. Now, it's actually not Sephardic. It's the Arizal's mix between the two versions. But, um, but it became so that way, a lot of Sephardic traditions brought, were brought into um, Ashkenazi community and um, the other way as well. Now, before 14, now we're Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews today. So before 1492, the majority of Jews in the world were Sephardic. The vast majority of Jews were in the world were Sephardic. Um, most Jews lived in Spain. However, due, due to the expulsion of Jews from Spain and assimilation, persecution, assimilation of many Sephardic Jews into the Ashkenazic community, the Sephardic community dwindled somewhat while the Ashkenazic community grew. On the eve of World War II, out of about 18 million Jews in the world, some 90% at the time, some 90% were Ashkenazic and almost 10, about 10% was Sephardic. So the vast, vast majority of Jews in the world at the time then were Ashkenazic. Unfortunately, almost all those Jews who were killed in the Holocaust were Ashkenazic. Sephardim were killed in Greece and the Balkans in very large numbers. Um, most Sephardic, most places that had large Sephardic communities were not conquered by the Nazis at all, not, did not fall under Nazi rule. Um, amazingly, the largest Sephardic communities at the time, which were found in North Africa, did come under, not, not under Nazi rule, but the Nazis did not harm the Jewish communities in North Africa at all. So they did have some anti-Jewish laws, but they did not harm them at all. And so as a result, um, and due to of the Holocaust, and due to a higher birth rate among Sephardim for the, in the years since, today Sephardim make up about 25% of world Jewry, while Ashkenazim about 75%. Although there is a lot of crossbreeds today, people that are half, half, half. In Israel, which is the largest Jewish community in the world today, Sephardim and Ashkenazim split about 50-50. About half of Israel, Israeli Jews are Sephardic, about half are Ashkenazic. The same is true in much of South America, Central and South America. Um, the communities are mostly split, half Sephardic, half Ashkenazic. France is uh, about 90% Sephardic Jewry, um, almost all from um, North African descent. Um, Moroccan, Algerian, Tunisian Jews um, that moved to France. Here in the United States, the original immigrants to the United States were Sephardim from Holland and England. 
Um, England's original Jewish community when Jews started moving back in the 1600s was Sephardic um, and Holland had a very large Sephardic community. Those Jews moved to the United States. In the early days of the United States, the large, most Jews were Sephardic. However, over the years, large numbers of Ashkenazic Jews, first from Germany and then from Eastern Europe, moved to the United States in very, very large numbers. And as a result, today, about 90% of Ashkenazic Jewry, of American Jewry, are Ashkenazic. To the point that um, most Ashkenazic foods are thought of as Jewish foods in this country. And <clears throat> most Ashkenazic uh, Yiddish is thought of as a Jewish language, um, even though Sephardim don't speak it at all. Um, but people associated in the United States associate Jews with Ashkenazic Jews because 90% of Jews are Ashkenazic Jews. Um, here in Los Angeles, it's a little bit different um, because we have a very large Iranian Jewish community, which are not technically Sephardic. They're really Iranian. They're really independent, but considered Sephardic often. We also have a large Moroccan Jewish community, Jewish community of Moroccan origin. Um, so as a result, we have a slightly larger Jews in the United, in Los Angeles, um, Sephardic Jews make up a slightly larger number percentage. Um, still, the vast majority remain Ashkenazi. And yet, despite the differences, we remain a single Jewish community. History has shown that over time, sometimes hundreds of years, um, various communities that were, were separate because they came from different places originally, such as what happened in North Africa um, or in, or in uh, or in other places, over time, they do merge, they do come together, and we're gradually seeing some merge between Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jewish communities, um, a lot of cross-pollination, a lot of uh, people who, uh, marriage between the two communities where children are, have parents, grandparents that are both, um, and so we're seeing a lot of that already, and, um, but regardless, we are a single Jewish community. And Jews around the world have always been there to help other Jews. Um, when in the 1850s, there was a blood libel in Syria in Damascus and um, Jews of Damascus came under great threat. Um, Jews from around the world, Ashkenazic Jews, went to great lengths to try to help um, the Sephardic Jews of Syria. The same happened when um, Jews in Romania were persecuted. Also in the mid 1800s, there, was, there were pogroms in Romania. Uh, Moses Montefiore, who was a Sephardic English Jew, um, used his influence to try to help the Jews of Romania. And the same has happened time and again. We Jews have always worked together as a single community. We've always been one community despite our various customs and traditions. And we always remain one united community. And um, to believe that despite our minor cultural differences and even halakhic differences, we remain a single people. And so I thank you for joining us um, for today. I 